Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. All flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I guess that uh, at some times in our lives we're going to have that feeling that we are tiny, insignificant people in a massive universe. Now there's actually a very good reason for us feeling that way and it's because we are tiny, insignificant people in a massive universe. We live in a universe that's so big that it's really just a bit hard to get your head around just how big it is. As soon as people start talking in billions of kilometres or thousands of light years, well, my mind just switches off. I I can't even begin to understand all of those things. Uh, There was a really great quote uh, in one of the chapters of a book called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, a comedy book, but talking about how big space was, and this kind of sums up my feeling about how big space is. Space is big really big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the road to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space. See, we live in a universe that is really huge. I found a video that might give you a bit of an idea about how tiny and insignificant our world is compared to some of the other things that are floating around out there in space. just gives you a little bit of an idea about how tiny and insignificant our planet is, or more importantly, how enormous this universe is. The Bible says that God is the one who is responsible for creating all of that. Not just the little bit that we live on, but the whole thing. And when we can't get our head around how big that whole thing is... Well, it's pretty difficult to get your head around the idea that there's a God who actually created that whole thing. But it's the message that the Bible clearly has. He's the one who created everything. He's the one who hung all of those stars in space. He's the one to whom we owe our very existence. When it comes to the topic of creation, and that's where we're up to this morning in this doctrine series of what we believe, we're looking at the idea of creation. You could get the impression in our world today that um, you have to make a choice between Christianity or science, that you can't have both. 
You often hear people say that science is based on facts and reason and Christianity is blind faith. You, you can't reconcile the two. Uh, someone mentioned a Bible study during the week that they have a friend who said to them, I believe in science, you believe in God. As though they're completely contradictory ideas. But I've got to say, I don't follow that logic. And there are plenty of scientists who don't follow that logic either. Some of the most eminent scientists in history have been committed Christian people. They saw no contradiction between science and faith in a God who created everything. Uh, Let me run you through a few of them. Sir Isaac Newton, who was an English physicist and mathematician, widely regarded as one of the most influential scientists in the entire history of humankind. Newton was also a committed Christian, a firm believer that God had created the universe in which we live. Michael Faraday is considered by many to be the greatest scientist of the 19th century. His work on electricity and magnetism revolutionised our understanding of physics. He was also a committed Christian and an elder in the church that he was a part of. Uh, Let's go to someone a little more modern. Dr. Francis Collins is a scientist and a doctor of medicine who was, uh, from, from 2003 to 2009, was the head of the Human Genome Project in the United States. In 2009, he was appointed by President Barack Obama and universally endorsed by the Senate as the head of the National Institutes of Health in the United States. Collins grew up in a non-Christian home, but during his career as a scientist became completely convinced that there is a God who created this world in which we live and has revealed himself through his son Jesus. Some of the greatest scientists that our world has known see no conflict between science and faith. They see them fitting quite neatly together. Science and belief in God, a God who created all things, are perfectly compatible ideas. In fact, when it comes to science and Christianity, on the fundamental things that we believe as Christians, science is in complete agreement as well. Uh, The first thing, the first and most important thing to understand about creation is right there in the opening three words of the Bible, the first three words of the book of Genesis. In the beginning. The world that we live in had a beginning. The universe that we are part of had a beginning. In fact, if you wanted to be a little bit cheeky, you could say that science actually took a little while to get on board with this idea. Up until about the mid-1950s, scientists held to what was called the steady state theory, that the universe had just always been here. It wasn't until recently they've come to the idea that it did have a beginning. They talk about it in terms of being the Big Bang. Scientists now realise that their previous theory was wrong and that this world, this universe that we're a part of, did have a beginning. Well, the Bible's been teaching that for thousands of years. The universe that we are part of had a definite beginning. But there's another area where science and Christianity are in complete agreement. This world is an ordered place. The very basis of science is the laws and the principles that govern and control the universe that we're a part of. Things like gravity, things like the fact that water boils at 100 degrees Celsius or freezes at zero degrees. Those laws, those principles, well, they're what make science possible. The fact that the world is uniform, that things happen consistently. You can repeat experiments 
because creation is ordered and organised. You can understand things by comparing them to, to other things because the world is an ordered place. And again, the Bible's been saying that for thousands of years as well. This world is ordered because that's the way that God created it. But enough about science. Let's move on to hear some of the things that the Bible says about creation. Now again, we're not going to be able to say everything that the Bible says about creation here this morning, but let me give you three things. Uh, There's an outline on the back of the notice sheet that'll help you as we look at these together. But the first thing is this. Creation was ex nihilo. That's a Latin expression. It means out of nothing. It's something that's uh, picked up in right throughout the Bible. So it's not as if God just started with somebody else's work and finished it off. It's not as if God was just working with what was already there to create the universe. The Bible makes it clear that in the beginning there was nothing and then God created everything. That word that gets translated create there in Genesis chapter 1, it's a word that's only ever attributed to God in the pages of the Bible. This is a different word that comes up later on in Genesis chapter 1 where it talks about the fact that God made things. That making is really just forming things and shaping them together. But that create word, that's the ex nihilo word, that's the out of nothing. God created things. And it's only God who creates. And not only did God create out of nothing, but the Bible wants to stress that the whole of creation is God's work. He alone is the God who was there before creation. He alone is the God who created all things. This is not an eternal universe that's just always been here. There was a clear point at which it began. Uh, Let me take you to a couple of Bible passages. Isaiah chapter 45. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned them and made the earth, he who founded it, he did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord. There is no other. God alone created all things. And created them out of nothing. I think that's what the writer of Hebrews has in mind when he says this in chapter chapter 11. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. God didn't just work with what was there. No, he created the things that were there and then made this universe from them. Another message that comes through very clearly in the pages of the Bible is that God didn't simply create the world that we are a part of. This world belongs to him because he created it, but not simply because he created it. This world belongs to him because he's the one who sustains this world. This world continues to spin The sun continues to rise. You and I continue to draw breath because God enables and allows that to happen. That's what Paul said when he stood up in the Areopagus. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. 
For in him we live and move and have our being. And Jesus makes the same point, doesn't he, when he says this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. See, the message of the Bible is pretty clear, isn't it? This world belongs to God and this world is sustained by God. The power that brought things into existence is the same power that keeps this world ticking. And another point that the Bible wants to make that's closely related to that is that God has a relationship with this world. He is closely wound up with this world. So it's not like the world's just some clock that God has spun the dial and set it ticking and he's gone off to do other things. So the creation is not like a house that a builder will build. When he's finished building it, he hands over the keys to the owner and he'll probably never set foot inside that house again. And he certainly won't have an ongoing relationship with the people who live in that house. That's not what creation's like. Just like Jesus said, sparrows don't fall to the ground unless it's apart from God's will. The God who created the world is not some faceless deity who's gone off to do other things while we get on with our lives. But I think sometimes we can actually give that impression. Or we can give that impression a little. See, when we only recognise God's hand in miraculous things, or when we only recognise God's hand in special or, or significant events... We're giving the impression that God doesn't have anything to do with the day-to-day running of the world, aren't we? See, if we only see God in what we call the miraculous, aren't we saying that God has nothing to do with the rest? So when we see a prayer answered, something miraculous happen, and we do know that it is God's hand, and we draw attention to that, what are we saying about the rest of life? What are we saying about the next breath that I draw, the next sun that rises? Is God not responsible for those? Do they just happen by themselves? Well, no, they don't. So yeah, the whole of our world, the miraculous things and the boring and mundane things, they're all because God is at work sustaining the world that we're in. Our God is involved in every aspect of our world and sustains our world. And God's intention when he created this world was to have an ongoing relationship with his creation, particularly with the people that he made. When God created the world, he created a world with which he would have that ongoing connection. And we're going to see that as we look at mankind next week. Now, there's one thing about creation that we don't quite get our head around properly until we reach the pages of the New Testament. And it tells us something that we probably ought to have known, but we didn't quite pick it up. This is how John opens his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And he goes on to tell us that the Word is Jesus. Now, there's something that you probably didn't notice in Genesis chapter 1. 
Jesus was there at creation. But I suppose it's obvious, really, isn't it? I mean, if we believe that God is Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, then of course Jesus was there at creation. We really should have been able to join the dots on that one, but John points it out to us in a rather surprising way here in the first chapter of his letter, or his book. The New Testament says that Jesus is the word through whom creation came into existence. When God spoke... Jesus was that word that brought about creation. Writer of Hebrews says a similar thing at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. But it goes beyond that. Look at what Paul says in Colossians that passage for in him all things were created things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities all things have been created through him and for him he is before all things and in him all things hold together Creation came about through Jesus. And then Paul gives us that added detail that it was created through Jesus and it was created for Jesus. This world, this universe, belongs to Jesus. He's the one who rules over it. Jesus is king. And they're the kinds of claims that Jesus made as well, aren't they? All things have been committed to me by my Father, is what Jesus says. Then Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it's not just these places, it's the message right throughout the pages of the New Testament. The New Testament writers want to stress that idea that Jesus is king. He's the one who rules over everything. It's probably best summed up in what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It doesn't get a whole lot clearer than that, does it? There was a story uh, over the past couple of weeks, you you might have seen it, I don't know, it was just a tiny little detail in the news about a baby who was born in uh, in London. Um, it seemed to dominate the story for quite a few weeks, didn't it? We spent so many weeks waiting for it to happen and then we spent the next few weeks talking about it after it had happened. But all the fuss was because that little child wrapped up in that cloth there is now third in line for the British throne. George will in all likelihood one day become the King of England. Sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? King of England. Until you start to actually think about what it means. The king and the queen in England have little or no real power or authority. That was taken away from them by the parliament in the 1600s and 1700s. The role 
purely is a ceremonial role. It involves a lot of building openings, ribbon cutting and tea drinking. And that's what George's life will be destined to, to be the king of England. But it's really just king in name only. It's not about ruling, it's not about authority. Now, when it comes to talking about Jesus being king, we're going to make sure that we don't kind of compare it to being the king of England, like, you know, a pretend king, not really a king. The Bible wants to make it abundantly clear that Jesus is the king of this world. This world was made through Jesus. This world was made for Jesus to rule over. And a claim to be a Christian is a claim to have bowed your knee to Jesus. To have have accepted him as your king. And not just in name, but in reality. Probably the most significant aspect of acknowledging Jesus as king is you recognising that you're not the ruler of your life. That you're not the king or the queen of your domain. That Jesus is your king. It's a humbling thing, isn't it? You're not the ruler of your life. Your life is not yours. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Jesus. So what's that going to look like in your day-to-day life? Well, it's going to mean that every aspect of my life should be lived in that knowledge, shouldn't it? We shouldn't think that our life can be petitioned off. You know, I've got my Christian part over here. Then there's my work part. Then there's my family part. And then my hobbies are over here and my social life's there. And they're all kept very, very separate. Now, Jesus is king of all of them. Jesus rules over all of them, not just the Christian part. Jesus is king of all. King of your work, king of your free time, king of your future, king of your family, king of your money, king of your hobbies. We should see that all that we have, that all that we do is to be done under the kingship of Jesus. Now, I hope that doesn't sound onerous to you. Because Jesus is not some kind of ruthless king who's wanting to force his will on us. Jesus is the king who loved us enough that he laid down his life for us. He died so that we could be a part of his kingdom. He died so that we could be forgiven. He's the king who loved us enough to give his life for us. This is a king who's worthy of you bowing your knee to. Jesus is the king who wants what is best for you in your life. And more than that, who knows what is best for you in your life. 